Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 263. Today's big Bible question, what did David do wrong that led him to adultery and murder? Well, hello, friends, and a felicitous Tuesday to you. Our Bible passages today include 2 Samuel 11, which has the saddest violence yet in it, plus Psalm 62 and 63, Ezekiel 18, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, our focus passage for the day is all about David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. But before we get there, I would be remiss if I didn't cover a part of our 2 Corinthians 4 passage because that is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I have a lot, I know, but this is up there. I especially love verses 7 through 9, which says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. So we human beings are but clay jars, weak, fragile, messy, dirty. The extraordinary thing about us is that we are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And though we are weak, fragile, messy, and dirty, we have this amazing treasure in us as jars of clay. So what is the treasure? Well, we see in verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, remember yesterday, we learned about how we're the letters of Jesus to a lost and dying world. His word and his presence in his light is to shine out of us, shining in the darkness to give the world knowledge of God's glory through the appearing and testimony of Jesus. So you and I shine the light of Jesus, spread the fragrance of Jesus, share the letters of Jesus written on our hearts. Well, in addition to being a podcaster, if you've been listening to this uh, show for a while, you'll know I'm also a pastor and preacher, and have been so for a little over 25 years. Now, I love pastors and preachers for the most part, but there are some things that we pastors and preachers uh, do, myself included, that can be a little bit aggravating. So let me let you in on a dirty little secret of pastors and preachers. Sometimes we jump to conclusions. Sometimes we make up stuff. Sometimes we connect two dots or ideas that really shouldn't be connected. Now, I've tried to avoid that kind of behavior for years, but I'm sure my hands are not unstained with this blight. Jumping to conclusions and making assumptions about the Bible is really particularly dangerous for pastors when we're dealing with the Bible. Well, the Bible is infallible, error-free. It's absolutely true. But my opinions on the Bible, and even more, my assumptions on the Bible, they are not error-free, and they are most certainly not infallible. The problem, however, is that people assume preachers know what they are talking about, so they tend to take what they are given as gospel truth when it comes from a preacher, rather than do the noble Berean thing, as Paul calls it, and search the scriptures for themselves. Now, when I'm preaching or teaching or even podcasting, I usually try to differentiate between between my opinion and what the Word of God actually says, but again, I'm sure I failed to do that, and even on this show, 260 episodes in. Well, when pastors and preachers interject their opinions into the text, we fall into what is called eisegesis, or reading our own theology and opinions into the text, as opposed to exegesis, which is far more responsible, and that indicates getting our theology and opinions and beliefs 
out of the text. Well, it's a great danger to read opinions into the text, into the text, and it leads to many, many, many Bible myths. And I'm reminded of two or three of those myths today from our passage, which is all about David's sin with Bathsheba, one of the more well-known stories in the Bible. So let's read the passage now, and as we listen, try and see what happened to lead David into the sin of adultery and murder. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled along on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, When you've finished telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, Your servant Uriah the Hethite is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David, The men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hethite is also dead. David told the messengers, Say this to Joab. Don't let this matter upset you, because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband, Uriah, had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. 
However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Well, I can think of three Bible myths, maybe two and a half Bible myths that I have actually heard preached from this passage. Number one, Bathsheba was in the wrong for bathing on the roof. Number two, David should have been with his men leading them into the war. Let's call that a half myth. And number three, David should not have been strolling on his rooftop oogling women who were bathing. Well, to be sure, I'm not declaring these three things myths because I'm sure all three are false. I'm declaring them myths because the Bible doesn't really even hint that they are right. They are assumptions, and as we already discussed, assumptions are dangerous because they make a sump out of A and ions, or something like that. Anyway, trust me, making assumptions about the Bible is dangerous. If the Holy Spirit had wanted to draw attention to one of these things, he very likely would have, and the fact that he didn't means that we should be quite silent in the face of uncertainty. Now, it is conceivable that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof of her house trying to attract the attention of a man while her husband was gone, but it is probably far more likely that this was not the case since the Bible doesn't even imply that. To blame Bathsheba here is honestly a fairly misogynistic form of victim-blaming that is dangerous. The Bible nowhere condemns Bathsheba, and neither should we. It may have been perfectly typical at that time to have a bathing place on the roof. We don't know. We don't even know how clothed or unclothed she was while she was bathing. We don't really know the traditions of bathing several hundred years before the time of Christ. Now, speaking of Bathsheba, it is quite an interesting fact of etymology that her name has nothing to do with bathing or baths, and I'm not even kidding. Uh, I know that's where David first saw her, bathing, but that has nothing to do with her name. Bath in Hebrew means daughter of, in much the same way as Ben means son of. So Benjamin is the son of Jamin, and Bathsheba is the daughter of Sheba. Same with the use of the word talent in the New Testament. That word was at the time a currency or weight during uh, the first century and only came to be associated with our understanding of the word talent, as in, you know, so-and-so is a talented piano player in the 1100s or 1200s. But anyway, I digress. The main point is not etymology, but the main point is we really have no biblical indication that Bathsheba did anything wrong at all. We also don't have... At least we don't have a strong, clear biblical indication that David's mistake was in not leading his men to war. It is conceivable that the first verse of our chapter here is maybe indicating or implying that David should have led his men to war, but honestly, I see no scriptural command for God's people to do such a thing, nor God's kings to do such a thing. Now, 2 Samuel 12, the very next chapter, may also sort of indicates that kings were expected by their uh, their fighting men to lead their men into battle. But again, I stress this appears to be a cultural expectation of the ancient Near East at the time, you know, the country surrounding Israel, and not a command from God. The Bible does not rebuke David for staying back when he sent out his men into battle, so I don't believe this was the source of his sin with Bathsheba. Likewise, his stroll on the roof. Was this the act of a peeping Tom? Was King David a pervert? Well, if it 
is the case that that's what happened. The Bible does not explicitly point it out. To be very clear, it would be wrong if David was strolling on the roof of the palace hoping to catch a glimpse glimpse of something untoward, but in the absence of the Bible indicating that's what he did wrong or telling us that he was, you know, doing something improper, we should probably practice Paul's commands in Romans 14 here, letting each servant be judged by his own master and mind our own business. Because just like I can't read somebody else's motives for what they're, why they're doing what they're doing, I certainly can't read the motives of somebody I've only read about in the Bible that happened, uh, you know, over 2,000 years ago. So what did lead David to sin? Well, I believe the most biblical answer to that question is very simply this, his sinful heart, his incurable sin nature. Now, in the New Testament, we are told very clearly, there is no one righteous, not even one. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Well, David was a man after God's own heart, and we don't have that testimony from the pen of David. This is what God said about him, Old and New Testament, and yet King David also had a deceitfully wicked heart. And in our passage today, King David, quote, went with his heart instead of following God's commands, and his wicked heart led him to adultery, a type of rape of power, deception, conspiracy, and cold-blooded murder. It is sobering to realize the extent of darkness in the fallen human heart. You have certainly heard the saying about power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely. That's most certainly true. One way we can see David's entitlement and the principle of power corrupting uh, is the area where he did absolutely transgress God's law. And that is in the way that David accumulated wives uh, throughout his reign as the king. Now, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 says, In giving commands to Israel's future king, the king, or he, must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Apparently, David did this with wives and uh, and silver and gold too. And his son Solomon did it to an even greater extent, and it led both those men astray. That command was ignored by David, and step by step, that led him further and further away from being the mighty young man of God who was victorious over Goliath and wrote psalms in the fields, and more towards the kind of person who felt entitled to take what he wanted, even another man's wife. So the message of David and Bathsheba for us is guard your heart and don't trust your heart. Follow God's commands, not your own fleshly desires. Now, Tim Keller will close us out for today, part one of our series on David and Bathsheba. We are going to visit this topic again tomorrow as we discuss Nathan the prophet's confrontation of David and David's repentance. And Pastor Tim Keller says this, Think of the character of David. Think of what we have seen about him so far in First and Second Samuel. Here is a man of great leadership qualities. Here's a man of incredible devotion to God and tremendous devotion to his people. Here's a man of artistic genius. 
He's a poet, a man of tremendous courage, a man of character. Where did this come from? Where did this sin come from? It seems like it came out of the blue. How could he do such a thing? Robert Alter, who wrote a wonderful commentary on First and Second Samuel, says this is not at all out of the blue. He says if you go back and read chapter by chapter what has been going on in David's life, David has slowly but surely been changed through the way political power is ordinarily wielded. Slowly but surely, the way he wielded power changed him. Years and years of not exactly lying, not technically lying, but deceiving. Years and years of marginalizing his opponents, not dealing directly and honestly with them. Most of all, what happens especially to political leaders, is years and years of more and more taking liberties and feeling like they are above the law and above the rules because of the majestic self-pity that often happens to leaders, particularly political leaders. You might be saying, what are you talking about? And Keller says, see, if you're in leadership, especially if you're in great levels of leaderships, Two things are true. You suffer a lot. All kinds of hassles, all kinds of attacks, all kinds of problems come to people who are in leadership. If you're not in a level of leadership, you may not know what those problems are, but leaders get lots and lots of suffering, but also leaders get all kinds of acclaim. People are always praising them. And when you put these two things together, what tends to happen to leaders is bit by bit, they develop a self-pity. A majestic self-pity, I call it, because they say, nobody knows how much I suffer. Nobody knows what I go through to lead this people. I deserve a few breaks. I deserve a few comforts. Yeah, they might not be quite in accordance with the rules. People wouldn't understand if they knew, but, you know, honestly, I deserve it. So bit by bit, that kind of thinking, David has been changed. David has been corrupted by the way political power is wielded in his life. He's been doing it in smaller and smaller doses, and finally he drives over a cliff. This is not out of the blue. This has been happening to him all along. Robert Alter says he doesn't even realize just how much of a train wreck his life has become. He blew up his life, and he doesn't even realize it completely yet. And tomorrow we're going to talk about the stark and painful and heartbreaking moment when David realizes how far his lust, his lust for power, his sinful heart, and his sense of entitlement has gotten him. But for now, we will continue reading in Psalm chapter 62, verse 1. I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will never be shaken. How long will you threaten a man? Will all of you attack as if he were a leaning wall or a tottering fence? They only plan to bring him down from his high position. They take pleasure in lying. They bless with their mouths, but they curse inwardly. Selah. Rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend on God, my strong rock. My refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is our refuge. Selah. Common people are only a vapor, important people an illusion. Together, on a scale, they weigh less than a vapor. Place no trust in oppression or false hope in robbery. If wealth increases, don't set your heart on it. God has spoken once. I have heard this twice. Strength belongs to God, and faithful love belongs to you, Lord, for you repay each according to his works. 
Psalm 63, verse 1. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I will follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. But those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a meal for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of liars will be shut. Brothers and sisters, it is worth noting that those two psalms were were written both by the King David we are talking about prior to committing the horrendous deed that we read about today. And we learn from that to guard our hearts, that we can fall from any level, that temptation and entitlement can creep in and we can give into it even if we are wholehearted followers of God. It means that my following of God five years ago is important, but it doesn't preserve me today. In the same way that a deer longs for water every day, must we also long for the water of God's word and his spirit day by day, for by it we stand and by it we live. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. Suppose a man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual impurity. He doesn't impress anyone, but it returns his collateral. He doesn't oppress anyone, but returns his collateral to the debtor. He does not uh, commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He doesn't lend it interest or for profit, but keeps his hand from injustice and carries out true justice between men. He follows my statutes and keeps my ordinances, acting faithfully. Such a person is righteous. He will certainly live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. But suppose the man has a violent son who sheds blood and does any of these things, Though the father has done none of them, indeed, when the son eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, and when he oppresses the poor and needy and commits robbery and does not return collateral, and when he looks to idols, commits detestable acts, and lends at interest or for profit, will he live? He will not live. Since he has committed all these detestable acts, he will certainly die. His death will be his own fault. Now suppose... He has a son who sees all the sins his father has committed, and though he sees them, he does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He doesn't oppress anyone, hold collateral, or commit robbery. He gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from harming the poor, not taking interest or profit on a loan. He practices my ordinances and follows my statutes. Such a person will not die for his father's iniquity, he will certainly live. As for his father, he will die for his own iniquity, because he practiced fraud, robbed his brother, and did among his people what was not good. But you may ask, 
Why hasn't the son suffered doesn't the son suffer punishment for the father's iniquity? Since the son has done what is just and right, carefully observing all my statutes, he will certainly live. The person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity, and a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the wicked of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. But if the wicked person turns from all his sins he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he will certainly live. He will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because of the righteousness he has practiced. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? But when a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, Committing the same detestable acts that the wicked do, will he live? None of the righteous acts he did will be remembered. He will die because of the treachery he has engaged in and the sin he has committed. But you say, the Lord's way isn't fair. Now listen, house of Israel, is it my way that is unfair? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, he will die for this. He will die because of the injustice he has committed. But if a wicked person turns from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will preserve his life. He will certainly live because he thought it over and turned from all the transgressions he had committed. He will not die. But the house of Israel says the Lord's way isn't fair. Is it my ways that are unfair, house of Israel? Instead, Isn't it your ways that are unfair? Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your rebellious acts so they will not become a sinful stumbling block to you. Throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. Amen. Wow. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. Of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus 
will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Praise be to God. Brothers and sisters, we may be wasting away right now, and the world around us may be burning down, but we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and may he bring you his peace. Godspeed.